Thanks, Rachel. How are you doing?
morning. Y'all find a cool spot? <laughs> but he gives us more grace. That is why scripture says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. James 4, 6. Tonight, continuing in the video series, Dust to Glory with R.C. Sproul. Bring finger foods, and that's at 6 p.m. We'll need some special music for the summer months. See Jared if you're willing to be involved in that. Andrea's number there again. Check out the new missionary letters on the board. Um, attention nursery workers, we need two more volunteers. See Jolene if you're interested, and also the funding for the renovations in the nursery still need $850. SGBA camp begins today. Pray for staff and campers. Uh, church will pay half uh, for the children of the members. We, uh, in, in regard to that, um, you all know that Dean is going to be the speaker again. And Dean this morning, kind of as we speak, I guess, uh, is preaching uh, at, uh, remind me again, it's uh, Pine Grove Baptist, yes, Pine Grove Baptist. Um, that's the that's the church and the family that uh, lost uh, the the pastor lost his daughter and grandchildren this past week. I believe they were out of town traveling, and they were involved in an accident and they uh, they were killed. So uh, very difficult time for everyone involved, uh, the church, that family, that pastor, and difficult for Dean, I'm sure, uh, this morning. So. Uh, keep him uh, in your prayers. Also for camp again, uh, lots of lots of work goes into that. Everybody involved, just uh, go go go. You know it's a it's a difficult. They they love it, they enjoy it, but it is difficult. Uh, so that starts today. Laura's already either over there or on her way over there, starting to prepare. So. Uh, Wednesday evening prayer service uh, will be at the camp at 6.30. Jack celebrating his 90th. Uh, if you'd like to send him a card, drop it in the box and make sure that he gets that. 
Uh, if you'd like to contribute to the nursery project, you can see the Amazon information there. And again, that's that. Okay. Today's the last day. If uh, if you're forgotten in some way, can they drop it off at your house or something? Yeah. Okay. Okay. Very good. All right. I'll uh, I'll give you an announcement that's not in the bulletin. Um, and we're going to we're going to start putting it in there, but we're we're looking for another uh, another person uh, to get involved in the sound booth ministry. Um, still, still some problems there as far as uh, filling the slot when somebody's gone. Um, so it, it's probably not going to be a full time, but somebody that can get involved and, and at least know enough to get the recording done. So we'll, that'll be that'll be more information will be coming in. I we'll put that in the bulletin. So. Okay, anything I've missed? Scripture for meditation this morning, Ezekiel 28, 11 through 19.
Let's stand and open our service this morning in prayer. Dale, will you open again for us this morning? morning. Take your brown hymnal this morning and turn to 389, 389 in the brown.
be seated. <clears throat> I see a hand out there <laughs> already before I sat down. Yes, Naomi. Five, five, four in the brown. And do you have a reason for this one? Well, it reminds me a lot about grandma. And when um, dad told that she was gone, um, some people came at her house and we would all fly away and were received to taken from James, the third chapter, and we'll be reading verses 8 through 17. Okay. Please stand. Page 1883. The book of James, chapter 3, verses 8 through 18. But no man can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. With the tongue we praise our Lord and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in God's image. 
likeness. I mean, sorry. Um, out of the same mouth come praise and cursing. My brothers, this should not be. Can both fresh water and salt water flow from the same spring? My brothers, can a fig tree bear olives or a grapevine bear figs? Neither can a salt spring produce fresh water. Who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show it by his good life, by deeds done in humility that comes from wisdom. But if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny the truth. Such wisdom does not come down from heaven, but is earthly, unspiritual, of the devil. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder and, and every evil practice. But the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere, peacemakers who sow in peace raise a harvest of righteousness. I would ask and pray that the Lord would bless the reading of his word. Take your brown hymnal again and turn to 368, 368.
Our scripture text this morning is found in the book of James, chapter 3. We are about halfway through this series on joy unspeakable. And so we're moving along looking at different ways that we can think of joy. And today's message we're going to talk about the joy of humility. Might not think there's much joy in humility. Uh, but in reality that's where real joy is. It's not in arrogance, it's not in pride, it's not in those kind of things, but it is in the humility of knowing our place as creatures of God, and especially as saved people, as being the children of God under the headship of Christ the Lord. So as we come to our study, let's ask the Lord to be here with us and to intervene and to teach us from his holy word. Thank you, Father, for giving us the scriptures. Thank you for the book of James. As he talks about humility, warns us against the various evils of pride and arrogance. And we still struggle with these things today as part of our sinful human nature. But we have a new nature now in Christ. And so we're called upon to live by that nature, put to death the deeds of the sinful nature. And to live by the Spirit and walk in the Spirit, as Paul says. So help us to do that and bless your word to our heart. And if we're not humble as we need to be, and we're not, Lord, teach us humility by letting us look into the face and person of Jesus Christ, who, though the King of glory, humbled himself by becoming a man and a servant to serve God and that most horrendous way of dying on behalf of others. I pray, Lord, that that will show us the humility, the humility of Christ, the humility of our God, and why he hates pride so very much. Bless these truths to our heart. In Jesus' name, amen. We're looking this morning at this subject, the joy of humility. Our text is found in the book of James, chapter 3, verse 8 and following. What can we say about humility? Well, one thing I would say is it's the one virtue all of us need, but none of us have. If you look at our text this morning, James 4, you will discover that nothing of humility was to be found among James' readers. He tells us that there were fights and quarrels among them, James 4, verse 1. That was an outward expression of inner sinful desires. He calls it the battle within, verse 1. It would have been good if these inner battles had stayed there, but they didn't. They erupted into the outward dealings of things going on within the church. The prayer meeting was a gimme session. Gimme, 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 gimme. Full of covetousness, selfish requests. And if that were bad, not bad enough, the request had nothing to do with the desire for holiness of life, concern for others, 
but rather a grab session to get as much to gratify their lust for pleasure as possible. For example, verse 3 mentions adultery and mentions friendship with the world. To name but two. Verse 4. Think of how askew their thinking had to be. To think that God would hear such prayers. Worse. That God would actually answer such sinful prayers. You have to be really skewed in your mind. To think that you can pray sinful prayer requests. And expect that oh yeah God's going to hear that. And God's going to answer those things. It shows that you don't know God. You don't know something about his holy character. So one wonders out loud, did these people really know Jesus as Savior? Well, James was wondering the same thing. Look at verse 5. Do you think Scripture says without reason that the Spirit he caused to live in us envies intently? The word spirit, I think, should be capitalized, referring to the Holy Spirit, indicating the presence of the Holy Spirit and how he longs to have full sway in our otherwise greedy, selfish, and prideful lives. James is looking for humility, but it's nowhere to be found in these people. What is missing, maybe altogether, is grace. Look at verse 6. He gives us more grace. That is why the scripture says God opposes the, opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourself then to God. Resist the devil. Come near to God. So I would say it this way. If these people are true believers, they're far away from God. A distance created by their own pride. What do we know about God? Well, for one thing, the scripture says God opposes the proud. That's what we know, how he looks upon pride. God opposes the proud. The explanation as to why James hearers pray wrong prayers and why doesn't God answer them. He's never going to answer such lustful, selfish, self-absorbed prayers. God is not the candy man in the sky poised to dribble chocolate fudge on your otherwise bitter requests. God's character is such that he cannot abide pride. No, he opposes pride. I think more. I think he is determined to humble the proud. I think that's his mission, one of his missions in dealing with humanity. In Isaiah 13, the Lord prophesies against Babylon. And here's what he says. I will punish the world for its evil, the wicked for their sins. I will put an end to the arrogancy of the haughty and will humble the, humble the pride of the ruthless. Therefore, I will make the heavens tremble and the earth will shake from its place at the wrath of the Lord Almighty in the day of his burning anger. 
See, I will stir up against them. He's talking about Babylon now. I will stir up against them the Medes who do not care for silver and do not delight in gold. In other words, you can't buy them off. They're coming. I'm sending them. And you're going to get it. And there's no way out of it. It goes on. Their bows will strike down the young men. They will have no mercy on infants, nor will they look with sympathy upon children. Babylon, the jewel of the kingdoms, the glory of the Babylonians, pride will be overthrown by God like Sodom and Gomorrah. Isaiah 13, verse 11 through 19. That tells you what God thinks about pride. Going to bring people down. Years later, Isaiah prophesied a similar fate for Tyre. And for the same reason. I may read it for you. Who planned this against Tyre? The best bestower of crowns, whose merchants are princes, whose traders are renowned in the earth. Tyre was known for its trade. They had this fleet of ships that went everywhere. And when they came back from various parts of the world, they... The ships from Tyre were laden down with gold and silver and monkeys and baboons and all kinds of exotic animals and so forth. They were very, very wealthy. Now, it was a, Tyre was a city out on an island just off the coast in the Mediterranean. So they, they had to import everything. That's why they had this, these great ships and these merchants would bring these uh, produce and all of that in. But God says, the Lord Almighty planned it to bring low the pride of all glory and to humble all who are renowned on the earth. The Lord has stretched out his hand over the sea and made its kingdoms tremble. That would be Tyre. You know, they were a seaport city. And here's what he says. Look at the land of the Babylonians. So he, he refers them back. Look at the land of the Babylonians, this people that is now of no account. Boy, that's quite a statement. The Babylonians, a land of no account. The Assyrians have made it a place for desert creatures. They raised up their siege towers. They stripped its fortresses bare. They turned it into a ruin. Well, you ships of Tarshish, your fortresses are destroyed. Isaiah 23, verse 9 and 5. You're going to get the same thing that happened to Babylon. So be, a wise, be wise. In similar fashion, God did this with Pharaoh of Egypt. Here's what he said. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and said to him, This is what the Lord, the God of, heaven, of the Hebrews, says. How long you, will you refuse... To humble yourself before me. Let my people go so that they may worship me. Exodus 10 verse 3. The pattern was. Pharaoh's problem became Nebuchadnezzar's problem. Nebuchadnezzar's problem became that of Darius the Mede. And Cyrus and Alexander the Great. And on and on. All these kingdoms. The problem of inordinate pride. I am somebody. You are a nobody. 
They were kings, yes, and they were not about to bow to God. That was their attitude. Their sin was the first sin. Oh, Satan in his, of, of Satan in his revolt, God said this, How have you fallen from heaven, O morning star, son of the dawn? You have been cast down to the earth. You who once laid low the nations. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit enthroned on the mountain of assembly, on the utmost heights of the sacred mountain. I will ascend above the tops of the clouds. I will make myself like the Most High. Isaiah 14, verse 12 through 14. You can see his attitude was to replace God with himself as God. This was precisely, may I say, the temptation that he leveled to Eve. God knows, he says to Eve, that when you eat of it, the forbidden tree, your eyes will be opened and you, you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Genesis 3, verse 5. Well, <laughs> to be like God was too much for Eve to resist. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eyes and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and she ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, right there, right there, and he ate it, Genesis 3, verse 6. Satan asserted that he would make himself like the Most High. Eve was promised the same lie, and Adam along with her. Yet all of them were brought low. Brought low. You see, pride has no place in the heart of creatures over their Creator. It is unnatural that the clay pot should talk back to the potter and ask, Why did you make me like this? Romans 9 verse 20. And the next verse says, Does not the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for noble purposes and some for common use? Romans 9, verse 21. Can't God do with his creation what he wants to, what he wants to do? If, you want, if, if he wants to make you a cook pot, to cook vegetables on the stove, that's of his doing. Or what if he wants to make out of you a glorious and wonderful porcelain vase that kind of rings like a bell when you hit it with your fingers? That's up to God. But you see, pride is irrational. It puffs up. It pats us on the back. It brags. It boasts. It attempts to make giants out of midgets and wise men out of fools. It inflates reality. It makes men feel like, um, like they are kings 
when they're peasants. Like somebody's, oh boy, uh, when they're nobodies. God is the only one in the universe who is justified in being proud. Yet, as we shall see later, his chief posture, his chief posture, is humility. And in that, he rebukes us. And at the same time, he models the character, that character trait he most admires, the humility we all need but none of us have in our natural state. It's amazing to me that God just puts up with us in our arrogance, but he does. How important is humility? Well, that's my second point. Humility is the prerequisite of salvation, the gift of God. That's how important. I think it's fair to say that it is pride which keeps people from coming to God in faith. I mean, why would the proud come to God? They're self-sufficient. They need nothing that their own minds cannot conceive, their own hands cannot build. Oh, if they are a team player, they may acknowledge the need for cooperation, camaraderie, dialogue, interaction with coworkers. But in the end, they believe, they believe man by himself or working with other human beings can solve all the problems of the world if they just put their minds to it. All that is needed is a little bit of human ingenuity. But we certainly do not need a supernatural intervention and revelation from God. We can work it out. And education is the only God that we need. That's the way the world talks. And that's the way they think. Well, Jesus confronted this prideful spirit when he told the rich man who had just boasted about keeping all of the Ten Commandments from his youth up. Jesus said to him, you still lack one thing. Sell everything you have, give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. When he heard this, he became very sad because he was a man of great wealth. And Jesus looked at him and said, How hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. (coughs) Indeed, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And those who heard this asked, who then can be saved? And Jesus replied, what is impossible with men is possible with God. Luke 18, verse 22 and following. This man to whom Jesus was speaking prided himself in his alleged obedience to the law of God. He saw in himself no deficiency, No sin, no shortcoming. 
He had pulled himself up in society by his own financial prowess. No one gave him anything. He earned every penny that he possessed. Now this Jesus character has burst his bubble. He has informed him that his material holdings are holding him back from faith in God. Faith to rely on the righteousness of another and not his own. Faith to repent of his greed and his pride and thus gain the kingdom of God. Do that, he must ditch the pride. But the young entrepreneur could not do it. He could not do it. It's easier for a camel to squeeze through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to humble himself and enter the kingdom of God on God's terms. Oh, he had a God, but his God was money. His God was pride in his own ability to make money. But his money was no good with God, who owns the world and the universe. Money impresses proud people, but it does not impress God. Jesus said, no one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both. God and money can serve both. Matthew 6, verse 24. And that's why I said that this young businessman could not sell his holdings, distribute the proceeds to the poor, and follow Christ. Money was his real God, and covetousness was his damning sin. That's the breach of the Tenth Commandment. Now, before we become too self-righteous here, the people in the audience that day asked the right question when they said, well, who then can be saved? That's a good question. They were listening. They were adding things, two plus two, so forth, figuring things out. And they were listening to Jesus paint this impossible position that a person... They can't save themselves. So they ask this question. They were responding to Jesus' statement, how hard it is for a rich man to enter. Well, if a, if a good man, if a smart man, if an energetic man who knows how to turn a buck... If a self-supporting man and not a leech on society finds it very hard to enter the kingdom of God, then who of any of us has hope? I think that was a great question. And Jesus' answer was the only answer they needed to hear. What is impossible with men is possible with God, Luke 18, verse 27. People who love themselves and their own achievements can be saved, uh, not because of who and what they are, but because of God's grace. 
They have no humility before God in themselves. And so God humbles them. It's part of salvation. Solomon says the Lord's curse is on the house of the wicked. But he blesses the home of the righteous. He mocks proud mockers. But gives grace to the humble. Proverbs 3 Verse 33 and 34. ...had been reduced to a beast in the field by God and restored seven years later. This was his testimony, Nebuchadnezzar. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, everything he does is right and all his ways are just. And those who walk in pride, Allah, me... (laughs) All those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. Daniel 4, verse 37. The psalmist, in rehearsing some of Israel's history, mentions that God blessed them with fertile soil and a land for cities. And they prospered greatly, says he blessed them, and their numbers greatly increased, and he did not let their herds diminish And then their numbers decreased. And they were humbled by oppression, calamity, and sorrow. He who pours contempt on nobles made them wander in a trackless waste. Psalm 107, verse 38 and following. Note the means by which God humbled Israel. Oppression, calamity, sorrow, the contempt of the nobles. These are all little matters for God to perform. In Psalm 44, we learn that God stopped protecting his arrogant people. But now you have rejected and humbled us, they say. You no longer go out with us and our armies. You made us retreat before the enemy, and our adversaries have plundered us. You gave us to be devoured like sheep and have scattered us among the nations. Proverbs 44, verse 9 and 5. Uh, We probably don't recognize it, but God is doing us good when he humbles us. He's doing us good to humble us. How so? Because humility is the prerequisite to salvation. (coughs) David says it this way in 2 Samuel 22, verse 28. You save, he's talking to God, you save the humble. But your eyes are on the haughty to bring them low. Or again in Psalm 147. Great is our Lord and mighty in power. His understanding has no limit. The Lord sustains the humble, but he casts the wicked to the ground. Or again Psalm 149, verse 4 and 5. For the Lord takes delight in his people. He crowns the humble with salvation. Do you get it? The humble with salvation. Let the saints rejoice in this honor and sing for joy on their beds. You need to be singing and praising God if he humbles you. Zephaniah the prophet encourages us saying, Seek the Lord, all you humble of the land. You who do what he commands, seek righteousness, seek humility. Perhaps 
You will be sheltered on the day of the Lord's anger. Zephaniah 2, verse 3. Well, James assures us that we will be sheltered from God's fierce anger. Look at verse 9 of our text. Grieve, mourn, wail, change your laughter to mourning, your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up. James 4, verse 9 and 10. We read it as well in verse 6, but he gives us more grace. That is why the scripture says, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace, and may I say saving grace, to the humble. So it's a prerequisite for us being saved, and God does that work. Now, how do we obtain a, uh, uh, humility? We all think pretty well of ourselves, so how do we obtain humility? Well, we noted earlier that humility is what we all need, but none of us have. Ever since the fall, Adam and his posterity think of themselves as hot stuff. Pride just oozes from our pores. Paul says, For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought to think. But rather think of yourself with a sober judgment in accordance with the measure of faith that God has given you. Romans 12 verse 3. I read that, but you see that's the very essence of pride. Namely that we do think of ourselves more highly than we ought. How then will we ever acquire the humility necessary to solicit the salvation of God? Well, firstly, by acquiring the wisdom of God, which is his gift. James says it this way in our text. Who is the wise? Who has understanding among you? Let him show it by his good life, by deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. James 3, verse 13. The humility that comes from from wisdom. And we know that James is not advocating the wisdom of men because in context he goes on to say, but if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, don't boast about it or deny the truth. Such wisdom does not come from heaven, but is earthly, unspiritual, of the devil. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder and every evil practice. But the wisdom that comes from heaven, that's what I'm talking about, James is saying. The wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive. Well, isn't one trait of the proud that they do not submit to anyone? Not me, and he goes on, that wisdom that comes from heaven is full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. And he says, peacemakers who sow in peace raise a harvest of righteousness. James 3, 14 through 18. The source of humility is the wisdom of God. Which, as we have already noted, comes from God as his gift to us. 
Solomon put it this way, the wise man. Here's what he said. The Lord gives wisdom. And from his mouth come knowledge and understanding. Proverbs 2 verse 6. He would know. The man that is accredited in our minds in teaching as the wisest man that ever lived, bar, barring Christ, of course, wrote thousands of Proverbs, wrote many books of the Old Testament. And what is he saying? The Lord gives wisdom, and from his mouth come knowledge and understanding. That's where I got my wisdom. This was also stunningly demonstrated in the life of Daniel. When no one in Nebuchadnezzar's administration could interpret his dream, and Nebuchadnezzar threatened execution of all of his counselors, including Daniel. So Daniel solicited the prayers of his friends that night, and we read, during the night, the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision. And then Daniel praised the God of heaven and said, Praise be to the name of God forever and ever. Wisdom and power are his. He changes times and seasons. He sets up kings. He deposes them. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to the discerning. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what lies in darkness and light dwells with him. Daniel 2 Verse 19 and following. Now a skeptic might imply that Daniel just told Nebuchadnezzar what he wanted to hear. But Nebuchadnezzar was a pretty sharp guy. He was prepared for that trickery. His edict, his edict to the wise men was that not only must the wise man interpret the dream, he must tell the king the dream. Oh, oh, oh no, wait a minute here. Uh, I could just hear the wise men saying, you know, you're, you're, and they did say this, no wise men can do this. You're asking, Nebuchadnezzar, you're asking the impossible. If you tell us the dream, we'll tell you the interpretation. And Nebuchadnezzar was wiser than they. He knew that they might try to pull a fast one on him. See, so he says to them, no, you tell me the dream and the interpretation. Well, Daniel Daniel stood up and was able to do this. The next accusation might be that Daniel took credit for such wisdom. But when Nebuchadnezzar asked Daniel if he could tell the dream, this is what Daniel replied. Listen to him. Daniel says, No wise man, enchanter, magician, or diviner can explain to the king the mystery that he has asked about. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. Wow. He has shown King Nebuchadnezzar what will happen in days to come. Your dream and the visions 
that pass through your mind as you lay on your bed are these. Daniel 2 verse 27 and following. And then he explained the dream and told the meaning of the dream. And in this Daniel expressed the humility that comes from the wisdom of God. God, not himself, was credited for knowing the dream. Contrast that to what Paul says about the proud heart. Here's what he writes. We know that we all possess knowledge. Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. The man who thinks he knows something does not yet know as he ought to know. But the man who loves God is known by God. 1 Corinthians 8, the first three verses. We call these people know-it-alls because no one can teach them anything, not even God. They have no time for God. Instead, God is analyzed, he's criticized, he's departmentalized, he's dissected, categorized, pigeonholed, labeled as non-essential, and on and on it goes. They do not answer to God, God answers to them. And when God does not fit into their preconceived ideas about him, they jettison the notion of God altogether. And they say things, well, my God would... They start talking like they are God. Proud people shortchange themselves because they could really come into wisdom, but their arrogance will not allow them to do so. Again, the psalmist says, Good and upright is the Lord. Therefore, he instructs sinners in his ways. He guides the humble in what is right and teaches them his way. Psalm 25, verse 8 and 9. Solomon put it this way, a prudent man sees danger and he takes refuge, but the simple keep going and they suffer for it. Humility and the fear of the Lord bring wealth and honor and life. In the paths of the wicked lie thorns and snares, but he who guards his soul stays far from them. Proverbs 22, verse 3 through 5. James puts it this way in our text. Who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show it by his good life, by deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. James 3 verse 13. Those gifted with godly wisdom do not wait for God to judge their pride and bring them low. No, they humble themselves. They humble themselves. They, we could say it this way. They know their place. They know their place. God grants them the ability to know their place. When King Shishak of Egypt came against Jerusalem, 
God sent a prophet saying to those of Jerusalem, you have abandoned me. That's what's going on here. You have abandoned me, therefore I now abandon you to Shishak. The leaders of Israel and the king then humbled themselves and said, The Lord is just. And when the Lord saw that they humbled themselves, this word of the Lord came, Since they have humbled themselves, I will not destroy them, but will soon give them deliverance. My wrath will not be poured out on Jerusalem through Shishak. Second Chronicles 12, verse 5 through 7. If men knew the God of the Bible, they would fear him and humble themselves before him. Humility is the fruit that blooms on the root of knowing God. And without it, there is everything to fear, for God is opposed to the proud, but dispenses grace to the humble, as he did here in the case of the Israelites in Jerusalem. Secondly, humility is obtained by putting on the mind of Christ. Put on the mind of Christ. Paul told the believers of Colossae, For you know the grace of your Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. Similarly, we read in Philippians chapter 2, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. There it is again. But in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. Okay, what's his attitude? He goes on. Who being in the very nature, his very nature, God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped or held onto, but made himself nothing. Wow. (coughs) Made himself nothing. Taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness. (coughs) And being found in appearance. He humbled himself. There it is. Black and white. He humbled himself and became obedient to death. Yes, even death on a cross. Criminal's way to die. Philippians 2, verse 3 through 8. Now I ask the question, was Jesus diminished? Was he diminished by this humility? Did he lose out by becoming a man and by serving sinners through his death? Now let's read on in the text, Philippians 2, 9 and following. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, 
that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven, on earth, under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Philippians 2, verse 9 through 11. I think this is all similar to the principle that was taught by Jesus himself to his disciples. Here's what he told them. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled. And who can, whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Matthew 23, verse 12. Pride, boy, that's going to kill a lot of people. I would go so far to say that everybody in hell's fires was full of pride. Full of pride. It was the original sin. It's the ongoing sin. So you and I and all mankind have but two choices. You can strut around flexing your pride and credentials like a rooster on the farm that ends up in the farmer's roasting pot. Or, choice number two, you can seek God's wisdom, you can humble yourself before him, you can plead for mercy on the merit of Jesus Christ, and you can escape the fires of hell with life everlasting as God lifts you from judgment to glory. What's it going to be for you? What is it for you? Pride is a damning sin. But if we humble ourselves, God is attuned to that. He'll be gracious to the humble and save them from their sins. Father, we thank you for this. Not going to be any proud people in heaven. Just humble sinners that understand something about the grace of God, that they needed your grace, that they couldn't work their way to heaven. pray their way, do good deeds enough to win heaven. No, none of that. The people in heaven, even right now, and in our own case, will only be those who have humbled themselves and cast themselves upon the mercy of God because they are sinners in need of your grace. For us here today, for our radio audience, for anyone listening to the broadcast, may they understand that salvation is of the Lord, solely of the Lord. They can't win it, work on it, save themselves, none of that. They might in pride think that they can do those things which are pleasing to God, just like this rich young ruler who said basically to Jesus, Just tell me what to do. I'm sure I can do it. Well, he was told what he needed to do, and he couldn't do it. And that's all of us. That's a picture of all of us. God's standard is so high. Our ability is so low. We need an advocate. We need a mediator. We need a go-between. And thankfully, God has provided that in the person of Jesus Christ who alone has the righteousness, the righteous life, sufficient enough to please God 
and the sacrifice enough, his own shed blood, to cover and forgive our sins. We praise thee, O Lord, for your great grace. May someone today, here in our assembly or on the radio broadcast, may someone here today find your grace. Lord, may you bestow it upon them. May you grant them mercy and bring them to know Jesus as Savior. Amen. Our closing hymn is from the Brown Hymnal, number 385. 385. The hymn writer says, Jesus, keep me near the cross. There, a precious fountain, free to all, a healing stream, flows from Calvary's mountain. Second verse, near the cross, a trembling soul, yeah, but love and mercy found me. There the bright and morning star Christ sheds its beams around me. Near the cross, near the cross, be my glory ever. Till my raptured soul shall find rest beyond the river. That's the only place you're going to find rest. It's at the foot of the cross. Let's stand together and sing number 385.
page 385, just the chorus in the cross. us to remember the cross. How long? Be my glory ever till my raptured soul shall find rest beyond the river. The reason he talks about, she, it's Fanny Crosby, the reason she talks about the cross being ever in front of our eyes and so forth is to remember the humility. Remember the humility. What it costs God to save his people. There's no occasion for pride. If you're standing at the foot of the cross, you're under the shadow of him who was the king of kings and lord of lords and humbled himself even to the death of the cross. And we're never more unlike Christ than when we're arrogant and proud, know-it-all, all those things that so characterize human nature. May the Lord grant us his humility. See you tonight at the Bible study, 6 o'clock.